The House is in recess this week, but the Senate will hear more budget testimony and deal with judicial nominees. We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. I guess I'm a little surprised. I mean, I haven't looked at the schedule lately, but after dropping something of a bomb in the House barely passed debt ceiling budget negotiation type of bill, they wouldn't kind of stick around to push it now that the Senate, I guess, in theory has to deal with it. That's true. I mean, they made sure they got this done before they took this week off because they wanted to have something in the hopper by the end of April. This was a long scheduled recess week. There's some travel that members are doing, including Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, going to Israel and addressing the Knesset there or planning to at the very least. So they did pass that. As you noted, it was bare 217 to 215, but bare is still passed. And now that's waiting for the Senate to do something and also for President Biden, perhaps, to get involved in negotiations or talks with people on Capitol Hill. Right, because the president has said he's not going to meet with Kevin McCarthy. But on the other hand, even some of the papers that are, you might say, in the Democratic column somewhat editorially are urging this to happen. Right. I mean, the president has said he'll talk to Kevin McCarthy, just not about the debt limit, right? His position has been (laughs) increase the debt limit, deal with it. I'm not going to talk about anything else around that subject. So at some point, they're going to have to talk, right? Joe Manchin, the Senate Democrat from West Virginia, has encouraged talks to go on and he's up for re-election next year. Tough race. I think he wants to be seen as pushing this along and coming to resolution. It was really important for the House Republicans to get behind a plan, pass it, and then have this as their negotiating stake in the ground. The coverage leading into that vote is if it hadn't been successful, it would have been disastrous for Kevin McCarthy. I think the opposite is true now. Now now that he's passed it, he has a position, his conference is behind it. It gives him a strengthened hand in these talks. So It remains to be seen what the Democrats are going to offer in return other than what they said to date, which is that they want to increase the debt limit. It's important to pay the bills that we've already obligated ourselves to, and and let's just get it done. So um, a little bit of time left to go on this. The X date is still in the future, but not too much time given everything else that has to happen as well. Yeah, the best estimate now is sometime early summer to maybe midsummer, right? That's right. And it depends on how, you know, the cash flow of the government is, um, the revenues that continue to maybe trickle in from tax season and, and other payments that are due maybe in June. So a lot depends on just the bookkeeping and the churn of cash in the federal government. Right. And where they can go ransacking for money to, that they'll have to pay back to one account. What a way to run a coffee shop. All right. Still some Senate side budget hearings, though. That's still almost a pro forma thing. But they are looking at the submissions from the administration on behalf of the agencies still. That's right. They're still going through those at the cabinet, even sub-cabinet level. Um, One of the big ones this week will be Deb Holland, the Interior Secretary, going to the Senate Energy Panel. Um, But, you know, these are beginning to wind down. They're still going through these discussions. It is a chance for committees, both appropriators and authorizers, to take a deeper dive into what was sent to them by the administration. But really what we're getting closer and closer to is actually writing the spending bills and the defense policy bill that will do something with this budget request that was sent up by the White House. So we're getting near the end here. Some of these are pretty routine. Some of them still have their flashpoints. If members want to ask a tough question or hold whoever's in front of them to account on that particular day, but you know this is getting near the tail end of the normal spring season for this. But is there a connection between all of that debt ceiling talk because the Republicans are looking for cuts in return for I guess agreeing to raise the debt ceiling? But then these budget hearings have been going on, and there were a bunch in the House, and now there's winding down in the Senate, as you tell us. Is there any connection between those two? Because the budget they're talking about cutting is what they're examining in the hearings. That's right. I mean, one of the ideas in this House Republican plan is to reduce spending to fiscal 2022 levels um, when you write the bills for fiscal 2024. I think that's, you know, 
more than a hundred billion dollars cut compared to what they just passed um, in, in last year's omnibus. So overall, the spending will have to come down and you'll have to budget within that if that is the level that the two sides agree to. Now, there's going to be pressure in the Senate to push that up and not agree to that. But I think when it comes to writing the spending bills, you have to live within your means. Defense is obviously a hard thing to cut and Republicans are going to push to maintain or even grow spending there to keep pace with inflation. So some of these discretionary increases that were sought by the administration are going to fall on some deaf ears when it comes to Congress. So there's a long way to go here, but you can write a bill that has your priorities in it and then negotiate it along the way. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government, and the Supreme Court ethics kerfuffle going on thanks to some reporting from different sources. What's going to happen with that? Is that going to take up time and anything going to come of it, do you think? That remains to be seen. It's a separation of power issues keeps getting raised, right? The legislative branch trying to tell the judicial branch what to do, although, you know, that's not a perfect blank line because the legislative branch does have some power in our system of checks and balances. But the, what we may see that what we're supposed to see this week is a hearing held by Dick Durbin and the Senate Judiciary Committee looking at Supreme Court ethics. The big witness he wanted was Chief Justice John Roberts, who declined to attend, saying there wasn't precedent and that he wouldn't show up, basically. The hearing is still supposed to go on. They're still going to discuss this. There's people who have talked about using the eventual appropriations bill for the judiciary, which is part of the financial services spending bill, to maybe require a code of ethics there. So I think this discussion is going to go on. People are obviously upset about the news reports that you referenced and really want some sort of written down code for the Supreme Court that they can see, which they say they haven't, even though the Supreme Court says they do have a code that they're abiding by. Veterans Affairs is always an active area for legislation year in, year out, mostly in a bipartisan way. And we saw some gambits on the electronic health record project and a few other items, cannabis, anything going to happen in the near term there, do you think? Well, there was a vote last week that fell short of the 60 senators needed. It was, I think, 57 said yes. And actually, Chuck Schumer was a yes, but changed his vote to no to make it easier to go back to this. That bill was, at its heart, a cannabis research bill that they then were going to expand to have some home and community health-based provisions in it. And then what really seemed to hold it back, though, was concern from Republicans that they wouldn't have a chance to offer their amendments. I think there could be a path forward on this bill. And there is a lot of interest, as you say, in veterans' legislation, especially in May around Memorial Day and November around Veterans Day. So I think we'll see more there. On the electronic health records issue, John Tester and Patty Murray had introduced a bill, I think, back in March to try to overhaul that system. John Tester, who's the chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, claimed some credit a couple weeks ago when the Veterans Affairs Department said they're going to reset the program and, and try to get things rolling. And he then tied that back to his bill. So I think that is going to be a closely watched thing going into the spending season. And there will be some action on veterans legislation that maybe the less controversial stuff's always easier. And some of these other things could be a little more fraud as they try to do them. Well, the EHR system itself keeps obliging this debate by failing and crashing and not operating where it's supposed to. So that's That still goes on. So I guess maybe the hearings and the debate will still go on. And with respect to health and human services, the HELP bill on drug pricing, that's something Bernie Sanders and Bill Cassidy worked out? Yeah, they don't seem like natural partners, but they're the chair and the ranking member of that committee and both care a lot about health issues. And so they've come to an agreement on a package of drug pricing bills, including reining in, as they see it, pharmacy benefit managers. You've probably seen a lot of those ads in the Washington, D.C. area when you, you turn know, on TV or watch streaming. I've seen it's those ads and what they claim in those ads are kind of hard to believe. You know, this $7 pill was charged 5000 You just wonder, you know, if it's true. 
ads are meant to draw attention to themselves, right? That's the thing with those. So this is a package of bills that probably move on a bipartisan basis, given the fact that the chair and the ranking member have worked this out. Um, that would then head to the floor where I, I think people would like a win on a bipartisan basis on something like that. Um, so that's something to watch as it's moving forward. And, you know, these narrowly divided chambers, anything that has that bipartisan sure. imprimatur behind it, really you have to watch. All right. So maybe the next ad we'll see is 51% of doctors recommend camels. <laughs> Anyway, Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost 
incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.